I grew up in journalism in a time where the chief executive officers of the media companies weren't even allowed in the newsrooms. They, you know, it was verboten for the, the CEO to come and talk to journalists. We're a small organization. I think we have a different worldview. And so I think we just wanted to let the newsrooms know that I'm an ally and I'll be wandering around figuratively and literally and that I'll, I'll be uh, part of the mix. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Media Voices. We take a brief tour through all the news and views in the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard is from Stephanie Mehta, who is the CEO and Chief Content Officer of Mansueto Ventures. Um, that's the parent company of Inc. and Fast Company. So we talked about going from an editorial career to the CEO role, what the changes in leadership attitudes to publishing over the last decade have been, what Inc. and Fast Company look like post-pandemic, and where she sees the role of print at both brands. Before we get into our main story, on Wednesday this week at 10.35, I'll be on stage at the publishing show in XL London talking to Anoush Chakalian of The New Statesman and Chris Finn of DC Thompson about what makes an award-winning podcast. I'm really jealous you're going to like an in-person event. Right, <laughs> The thing is, if you probably want to sign up for our newsletter, if you're not already, there might just be a discount code in there for the publishing show at the XL in London. Before that, though, we are going to get into our main story. And we do just want to acknowledge that we are not going to be talking about the Ukraine invasion or its impact on the media quite yet. Um, it's moving so fast. Over the past couple of days, there have been bans of every social network, the BBC, and kind of retaliatory uh, bans and, and sanctions on some Ukrainian titles as well. So what we're not going to do is do a play-by-play -play of this. We don't think it's helpful. We don't think it serves anybody's best interest to do that. And frankly, it will probably be out of date by the time this episode comes out. But if you do want a sort of media-focused angle on that, please do go and support the Kiev Independent. Um, we spoke to Jakub Parazinski about this only a couple of weeks ago. More information about that is available on the site. We'll also tweet it out. But our main story this week is that Reach PLC has hit 10 million registered users and it's seen a digital ad dividend. So it announced its full year results for 2021. It announced an operating profit of close to 150 million, which is actually up 12 million. And yet the stock market didn't seem to appreciate that information. So this is effectively a tour through the very, very silly nature of the media industry. I thought they did quite well. I read a piece by a certain Mr. Chris Sutcliffe on the drum <laughs> that broke all this down, and and it it looked quite good. You know, you're thinking they've got um they've got a printed decline by four point seven percent on a like flight basis, but you know that's that was to be expected. That was actually a better performance than they'd originally anticipated. Reach last year put huge, huge amounts of work into integrating the print and the digital side of the business, and that's actually really started to pay off this year. So, digital revenue rose twenty uh, rose to twenty four percent of Reach's overall revenue. Um, they hired 400 new editorial staff last year, half of which were in journalist roles. Um, they achieved a target of 10 million registered users months ahead of the original schedule that they'd. I think they'd it was 10 months. For. 10 months ahead of schedule, which is not peanuts. That is, re yeah. you know, that's representative of some successful strategy there. I mean, this all looks like a success story, right? Like, like what's going <laughs> wrong here? <laughs> Well, they're also Peter. You were talking about this ahead of the podcast. They are also, in terms of you know, not to 
really beleaguer the point. But in terms of raw reach, they are still doing very, very well in terms of reaching people in the UK. Yeah, it's not just reach, it's growth as well. Charlotte Tobit of the Press Gazette speaking on the media podcast. There are other podcasts available other than this one. Um, she's she's talking about reach and it, the growth is, as she explains, reach locals growth is pretty much the biggest in the UK, maybe barring some BBC sites. Mm-hmm. So every time they cover, you know, who's who's doing best in terms of getting out there and reaching the audiences. Um, well then they're right up there so yeah, yeah that's i mean i remember i'm saying i'm saying i remember it sounds like it was 25 years ago <laughs> i remember tuesday last week <laughs> oh god <laughs> from when this was in the we started sharing a story on a whatsapp group and everyone's like what what's going on <laughs> well that's that's because they were like this is the top five fallers of the day and they were four russian companies yeah that's right. sanctions yeah. And then Reach, and we were all just like, has Reach got like Russian interests we didn't know yeah. about? Like, is it owned by some oligarch that we didn't know anything about? <laughs> well, yeah, so to put that in perspective, the share price actually fell 25%. Um, and it's kind of interesting how it was framed. So writing for The Guardian, Mark Sweeney effectively said, you know, it's warning of a profit squeeze. And there is there is a level of, you know, the lady doth protest too much in the actual Reach results where CEO says, oh, it's not a profit warning. I, I, that you don't need to be worried about this. It is just we are putting a bit of a cap on our growth ambitions for this year. But just so you know, our profits <laughs> might not be quite as good as we thought they'd be. It's absolutely 100%. a profit warning. <laughs> but to have wiped 180 million from the company's market value on a day when they actually delivered growth of the kind that they have and investment, more importantly, in kind of the foundational aspects of their business. So they've hired 400 new staff half of which are kind of in journalist-specific roles. But they've, they've so, gone and had like a huge restructure of all of their offices as well. They're, they're shut about 30 offices, so they've only got 15 remaining. And they've, they've done this sort of, it's not a hub and spoke, they call it like a home and spoke model, where they've got like way more journalists embedded in the local regions, but working from home. So they've delivered, I think it's about £8 million worth of cost cuts in that area. And you think, you, you look forward and you think, yeah, but Prince, Prince declining. You think in the longer term, if they're growing their digital business, they're growing their digital ads business, print decline, you know, over the next 50 years, that's only going one direction. Why has the market responded like, oh, no, this isn't a good thing? I I don't understand. I think we need to share with our loyal listeners what the 15 minutes before we started recording were like. <laughs> a little bit of how the sausage is made. Esther was pulling up the kind of the, the historic share prices. I was going back through the annual reports. Peter was using his breadth Troll- of knowledge to, yeah, to put this all in perspective. Trolling the news to see if <laughs> someone had sold something or bought something that we didn't know or remember in about. Why then did the market react like this? Is it just that they saw blood in the water and it's a local and regional publishing group? No, I, I think uh, I think there's a bigger question here, which I would love to know if any listeners know. Um, what happened in 2021? <laughs> if you look at Reach's share pattern, you know, it sort of bumbles along for a couple of years. Let's not go back to the 2000s because that's just depressing. You know, there's, a, there's a little spike in 2020 as everybody rushes to sites to find out what's going on with COVID. There's the post-COVID dip as things start to rise. And then 2021, it just climbs. And there is this huge peak, um, sort of August, September 2021. And then it, it literally looks like a mountain. It then starts to come back down. And then, you, then you've got this drop. So I don't want to say it's like a right sizing, but and, and this, this is what we were trying to work out before the show started. What happened in 2020 to quadruple their share price? This idea that the shares 
can tank this much on the basis of profit when there are sky-high valuations for digital-only operations that have never delivered profit? Well, at the risk of you ringing the rapacious capitalism <laughs> bell, that's the problem with these you know, publications, organisations that are publishers being funded by uh, by capital that's really got nothing to do with the market. It's just about turning a profit on the share price. It's all about sentiment and mm-hmm. it's kind of bullshit. The other thing there is that any publishing company in the UK that's got any sort of print business is going to be facing exactly the same rising newsprint costs, growing distribution yeah. costs, supply issues, energy price increases, but none of them are having a quarter of the value of their company wiped off. I, I don't know if it's just to do with the fact that... Um, so I think the the Guardian article said that print actually accounts for three quarters of overall revenue. Is it just that Reach is still so reliant on that print that any increase that, in costs really impacts that? But well, it's, it's I mean, heading in the right direction. True, yeah. Well, there's a couple of things to point out here, isn't there? I mean, the first is you know we we used to refer to it all the time. Clay Shirky's point, you know, is that as costs for print, you know, as circulations decrease cost for doing print does not decrease by anywhere nearly as much. You still bear the brunt of it, even though your circulations are decreasing. Reach uh, said that it has at least 20 years of significant cash generation in its print business. Answers on a very long postcard. <laughs> yeah, seriously, if anyone's got any thoughts on this, we would love to hear them. I like talking about stories that we don't know. Well, I mean, we never know the answer, but usually we know the background. But I quite like talking about stories that we're just like, huh? Speaking of people being unnecessarily certain online, Twitter is... Oh, this is the news and brief, by the way. (laughs) Twitter is expanding its fact-checking operation. So this time it's going to allow users to fact-check each other's tweets. This is an expansion of its kind of bird watcher (laughs) feature. And on the face of this, this seems like a fantastically stupid idea, given that the quality of discourse on Twitter is often on par with a a. 4am drunken argument in a chip shop. But as ever, the devil is in the details. So upon clicking through to a tweet, users are going to find helpful notes appended to that tweet that offer context, ideally, quote-unquote, there the bunny ears again, from an authoritative source. That's its own kind of worms. Uh, they'll then be asked to rate the note's helpfulness, ratings that in turn are used to determine whether to continue showing that note to others on Twitter. I mean, it, it seems to be in line with some of the discourse coming out of Twitter about the decentralization, you know, that idea of moving it back and the kind of hangover of the <laughs> the uh, the Bitcoin bros that that are still probably in charge. <laughs> Jesus, Wikipedia's been trying to deal with us for years. Yeah. Honestly, um, it's, it's this sort of crowdsourced fact-checking. Where has that worked? I, I feel like it's less about actually doing the fact-checking and more about surfacing some of the better responses. It does rely upon media. So that, that, that's Reddit they, style, right? It's Reddit style, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, you get to the top page of Reddit, you get to not, the top of the Not that Reddit is got any problems with toxicity. Not, not <laughs> at all. But see, that's that's more about community and less about the kind of the underlying voting aspect of information. You've all looked at the Daily Mail's comment section. What gets upvoted? <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Uh, speaking of the Daily Mail comment section, <laughs> um, very touching story this week. Uh, after pretty much gleefully announcing the scrapping of the BBC's licence fee in a kind of petulant fit over the corporation's coverage of our government's partying, um, Culture Secretary Nadine Doris got really quite choked up in the house the other day, praising 
the brave journalists reporting from the Ukrainian war zone. Unbiased coverage, she said. Mm. People risking their lives. And then, you know, I could slam. I've been told not to slam on Nadine because uh, that's not what we're about. I but, think we can easily point out the hypocrisy of this. Yeah, it's insanely hypo- hypocritical. But actually, there is a serious, serious point here. The BBC sends people to war zones, as does Sky and as does ITV, because they have, they're funded. There's no direct money in covering a war in Ukraine. You can't gain anything from it other than that's your job. Mm. And this is what will end up being killed if they defund the BBC the way they want to. And it's just, it is hypocrisy. And I'm not going to get into what a tool I think she is. <laughs> we'll be here all day on that front. But but the, the, the idea that we only talk about the good stuff when it's awful in the world, yeah. it's got to change. Well, when you and look not, at what the BBC has delivered over the past couple of weeks in, in yeah. Ukraine, with you know actually now broadcasting on shortwave radio, making sure that people have access to their stuff, going out of their way to make sure that people have access to their trusted um, source, still one of the most trusted in the world. And then you look at kind of individual journalists on the ground who are having to crowdfund to, to actually get out there and report. And it just, the the need for that information is is belied by the fact that we do take it for granted so much of the time. And the Financial Times has also hit a milestone this week. They've reached 1 million paying digital subscribers, which makes it the second British title to do so. Um, <laughs> the, the first is actually The Guardian, which doesn't even have a paywall. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, So The Guardian hit a million paying digital subscribers. Well, it hit a million paying subscribers in November. Yeah, yeah. But that's like a mix of digital subscribers and recurring contributions from supporters. Um, and that doesn't include the sort of fa- half a million or so that they get from one-off donations. Kind of one-offs, so, yeah. I, that, that makes The Guardian look incredible by comparison. Um, but actually, more than half of the FT subscribers are now outside the UK because they've had a really big US push recently. Um, and the digital journalism revenues now equal all the rest of its revenue streams combined. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's really good work in the FT. It but, is, yeah. Okay, I'm not. This is not a but about the FT's <laughs> well, Why did you start it with the word but? <laughs> well, because it because it was really interesting when Esther first read this story. What was your response, Esther? Oh, my response was awful. Uh, <laughs> I said, I, I said, one million doesn't sound quite that big when the, the NYT has just hit ten million. Isn't that isn't that bizarre though? That but, our, but our kind of needle's been shifted that much. <laughs> This is, I, th- I feel like numbers generally, when you're talking about numbers on the internet, it's all got a little bit silly. Yeah, like there was, there was a piece I was reading a while ago about like, you know, BuzzFeed would hit, you know, 50 million people and Facebook has 2 billion users. And you just get to say to the numbers just don't mean anything. Um, no. And I think I've got, it was one of the, one of the um, media analysts newsletters that said, you actually, we kind of need to reset our expectations with numbers because a million is a really good like that's a lot of people the ft doesn't charge a cheap subscription nope. and to hit a million paying digital subscribers is is a really big deal but my first thought was oh. <laughs> did they not already have a million i guess just because we've got so many subscribers that oh yeah it's, I, I get lost like yeah. Chicken feed. yeah this week, I'm speaking with Mansueto CEO and Chief Content Officer Stephanie Meta. She's held previous editorial roles at Vanity Fair, Bloomberg and Fortune before the Editor-in-Chief and finally the CEO position at Fast Company. So I started by asking her how much of a change it was to step into the role of CEO. 
Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I think that in some ways it's a huge change and in other ways it's a not so huge change. And I'll, I'll start with how it's not such a big change. I would say that editors uh, in, of business magazines in particular, but of, of all kinds of publications in the last sort of 10 years or so have really had to be a lot more entrepreneurial and business minded. And so, you know, in my roles at uh, publications over the course of the last three years, especially, but, you know, going back 10 years, if you're going to be a successful editor uh, in, in in editorial, it's very important to be entrepreneurial. And so I've really had to collaborate with uh, ad sales, with integrated marketing, with direct to consumer. And in that respect, um, being kind of business minded has been in part of my job for, for many, many years. In terms of the actual role of a CEO, in many ways, it's, it's very different. Um, the portfolio of things that are part of my purview has grown tremendously. Um, the size of the staff that I feel responsible for is, is much bigger. And so it's taking the learnings that I've had as an editor for the last 25 years and applying some of that wisdom and common sense to um, a much bigger, um, bigger portfolio of responsibilities and opportunities. Yeah. You said it was the last 10 years that editors have had to have that sort of business mindset. What, what do you think's caused that from your experience? I, I think it's a few things. It's a combination of the business models changing, going from print to digital first and foremost, but also um, realizing that the move from print to digital has, in, in some cases, you know, um, companies are now having to kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube and go from free content on their websites to looking for people to pay for their content, you know, moving to a subscription model. You know, there has been shifting business models. There's been um, uh, much more competition for audiences and readers. Uh, so all of those forces have come bearing down on journalists because at the end of the day at media companies you know it really is the editorial product that is at the center of of most media brands and so the editors who create and shape and curate that content i think have just had to think a lot more um, proactively about their business as well as about the the craft of of, of editing great stories yeah. So what's the difference between a chief content officer and um, a sort of an editorial lead? You know, I think every news organization defines chief content officer a little bit differently. In <laughs> our, you know, it's, it's sort of like um, I used to sometimes moderate events with chief marketing officers and they would talk about themselves as snowflakes because every company defines chief marketing officer a little bit differently. And I think the same is true of chief content officer. Um, at a lot of publications, chief content officer is sort of synonymous with editor in chief. Uh, at our company, we have two publications that have each have a, a, a top editor who are responsible for the day-to-day -day care and maintenance of everything that goes on their websites, in their magazines, the videos and podcasts that bear their names. And it's not my intent to interfere with that at all. 
I think as chief content officer, the the role sort of has two parts to it. One is that I'm sort of a backstop to those editors in chief. If mm. they need um, someone to talk about stories with, if they need um, someone to be a buffer between um, a source and the company or an advertiser and their content, you know, I, I can serve that role because I've been an editor and so I've walked a mile in their shoes. And then I think the other reason that we assigned the chief content officer title to, to me is to signal to the newsrooms that I have permission to um, have an opinion about the content. I grew up in journalism in a time where the chief executive officers of the media companies weren't even allowed in the newsrooms. They, you know, it was verboten for the, the CEO to come and talk to journalists. We're a small organization. I think we have a different worldview. And so I think we just wanted to let the newsrooms know that I'm an ally and I'll be wandering around figuratively and literally and that I'll, I'll be uh, part of the mix. And that's a reassurance, not a threat. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, what advice would you have for any editors that are perhaps looking to take that step up into senior leadership, a sort of CEO role? I would say that a couple of things have been really helpful to me in my career and would probably be valuable to any other editorial folks trying to make that transition to leadership. One is to um, really study business. Uh, I've been fortunate in that uh, I've been a business journalist for 25 years, and so I've had an opportunity to see really great business development and great business leadership. And I've also seen where companies have, have made mistakes um, and where hubris has sort of resulted in, you know, business failures and leadership failures. So I think it's important to be a good student of the world of business. Even if you're not somebody who's got an MBA, it's it's possible to, to read and absorb and talk to a lot of people um, and particularly business leaders that you admire to understand how they how they do what they do and how they got there. Um, another thing I would say is it's really important to cultivate a respectful relationship with your business side partners um, at your current publication. Really understand what their motivations are, understand where they're coming from. I, again, I've been very lucky in my career. A lot of my business partners um, have cared as much about the brand as the journalists in the newsrooms. Um, I've had business colleagues who, you know, feel so passionately and speak so passionately about the journalism. And that's truly a gift, but I think it's, it's valuable to seek out those people and develop really good relationships with them because, you know, when there are frustrations, when there are times where you know, the business side is pushing too hard on the editorial side. If you're both coming from a place of mutual respect, it's really easy to kind of get to yes and to be solutions oriented. And then the thing, I, the last thing I would say is that, you know, if, if you are considering taking on a business side role, um, do your due diligence and make sure that you have really great business partners. I have, uh, again, consider myself so lucky um, a wonderful chief operating officer, a really smart, knowledgeable chief financial officer. You know, I know these folks have my back. And so 
I know what I don't know, and I know that I have the privilege of getting to ask these really smart people to help guide me through the process. Um, COVID changed an awful lot in terms of publisher business models. Um, what were some of the biggest changes and challenges you saw during the pandemic? A, a couple of things. I would say that, um, first of all, you know, the early days of the pandemic, it, it feels like such a long time ago, but I do remember that feeling of, um, of helplessness and you know here in um, the greater New York area you would be on the phone and you would just hear ambulances and sirens in the background you know all day long and so I, I don't want to forever for a moment forget how um, truly helpless and um, and and almost out of control people felt um, back in in March and April of, of 2020 and so what was a real learning experience for me was that um, our journalism gave our newsroom a sense of purpose, both our newsrooms, the Fast Company and the Inc. newsrooms. You know, we were able, in spite of all of the despair, to produce really terrific journalism and really help our readers. For Inc., which is sort of the Bible of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and small business, you know, having that content to help them understand how to navigate the loan processes in the United States, uh, to have them, um, you know, just provide a sense of what other business owners were doing to help get through the, the pandemic. I think it was just a lifeline for so many entrepreneurs. And on the fast company side, you know, it was really providing vital information about how businesses were um, dealing with remote work, trying to make sure that their employees were safe, how they were dealing with some of the cultural issues associated with, with going completely remote. So first and foremost, I think that the, the big lessons for me from the pandemic were just, you know, how incredibly resilient our newsrooms were, even as we were talking about the resilience of, you know, healthcare workers and um, frontline workers all around the world. Um, in terms of the business changing, you know, again, it was gratifying it, amid all of the incredible despair to see that good content was needed and that people were were were, were running to it in droves. So both of our, our titles had incredibly strong readership numbers during the early days of the pandemic because we found that readers really were looking for good, fact-checked, credible information. And so it, it in many ways validated our journalism. So that was a, a mm. that was a silver lining. You know, for sure the advertising um, fell out in in most of, of early 2020. Uh, both Fast Company and Inc. relied heavily on live events for um, sponsorship revenue, and that completely um, went away. And so you know, our business side um, and editorial sides had to figure out how to how to do virtual events and how to, um, you know, figure out how to, um, you know, maintain our websites and maintain that energy of, of journalism, even at a time when we knew that, you know, we didn't have the, the financial underpinning um, that we had from, from advertising in, in previous years. You know, and the good news is that when the business did start coming back in 2021, we were in good stead. We hadn't hollowed mm. out our journalism staffs. We had continued to um, to produce the kinds of stories that we knew readers were interested in. 
And so we were well positioned um, to take advantage of, um, of, of growth when it, it did come roaring back in, in 2021. Yeah. So what do the revenue models look like for Ink and Fast Company sort of going forward, given that things like events are you know, going to be a bit more unpredictable? Um, and I suppose there's a lot we're going to have to learn to live with that is different to pre-2020. For sure. And you know, I, I hinted at this a little bit earlier. I, I feel strongly that a lot of our revenue growth will come from producing the kind of journalism that will get readers to want to subscribe to Fast Company and Inc. Um, you know, we've seen other media companies have great success by um, uh, by promoting subscriptions. The New York Times and News Corporation and other big um, editorial platforms. Um, you know, they're seeing very, very strong subscription numbers and growth in subscriptions. And so I think for Fast Company and Inc., for sure you're going to see a greater emphasis on um, on, on subscriptions and, and getting readers to, to pay for the journalism. Um, you know, we have also, I think, had pretty good success with virtual events. Um, and while for me personally, they're not as exciting or as um, uh, I, I don't retain the information from a virtual event the same way I do from a live event. I, I feel like there will be a mix of, you know, sort of virtual and live going forward, you know, sort of this hybrid model whereby, you know, there will be opportunities for people to convene in person, but some of the content may be streamed to audiences who you know, don't pay a premium for access to the information, um, but will still be interested in the content and, you know, may may pay a, a discounted fee to just be a, a virtual participant. So I think hybrid models for events, we're already seeing some of that. We'll, you know, all media companies, but ours in particular, will have to get good at that. Um, and then the last piece I would say is, you know, our, our titles have always had to be really solutions oriented when it's come to um, serving the needs of our sponsors and underwriters. And I just see that continuing. I, I don't see us um, diminishing our the importance of our, our advertising clients. Um, I think that we'll just have to be an, you know, be even closer to them and really figure out how to deliver a great experience. You know, we're very lucky because both Fast Company and Inc. have very specialized audiences, right? If you're trying to reach small business owners, you know, Inc. is a one-stop shop for that, and we can, you know, I think deliver on those promises. Um, you know, we, we're very clear-eyed about the fact that we're not, you know, the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal. We don't have that kind of um, breadth, but what we do have is depth. Um, I did note that both brands still have print magazines. Um, what do you think the place is for print in all of this? It's a great question. Um, for the foreseeable future, we will um, each title is is scheduled to publish six print issues in in twenty twenty two, and you know we will have a conversation every year about whether that is the right number of issues or whether we might need to come down um, an issue. I, I think there's there's no question that we have to be very realistic about where the readers are. For a lot of our audiences, um, readers and sources alike, 
they still love print. Um, you know, it's it, 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 the, the number is diminishing on the reader side because we've certainly seen a, you know, a generational shift in readership. But for sure, we've seen, you know, when we talk to sources about participating in stories, you know, the first question we often get is, is this going to be for print or is this for digital? So there <laughs> is, you know, people still want to be on the covers of magazines. Um, the, the other piece that's really interesting is that both Fast Company and Inc. have these well-known recognition programs. For Inc., it's the Inc. 5000, which is the list of the 5,000 fastest growing private companies. And for Fast Company, it's the most innovative companies. And both are these you know, sort of Super Bowl-like um, undertakings for the magazines. And, you know, again, we've found that the people, the companies that get honored on those lists, they they still want to see their names in print. And not only do they want to see their names in print, they're willing in many cases to buy advertorials acknowledging their appearance on these lists and thanking their staffs and their teams and their leadership for helping them achieve the honor of being an Inc. 5000 company or a most innovative company. And so we are still deriving a lot of revenue from you know, these custom advertorial ad ads that appear in print in both magazines. And again, we have, you, you can, those, those honorees have the option of um, purchasing digital ads, but I think there is something about the permanence of seeing that their, their name in print and their advertisements in print. Yeah. And um, there's a growing amount of competition in the business space. I mean, in a sense, Inc. and Fast Company, I don't want to say they compete with each other, but they definitely share the same space. So what do you do to keep the brand standing out from sort of other business publications, you know, Insider, Courts, all the ones like that? Yeah, I feel like um, there's no question that the competition has um, has grown and um, we welcome it because I think it shows that business isn't a niche anymore. It's really part of the mainstream conversation. And in fact, you know, our competition isn't only Quartz and Fortune and Insider and Entrepreneur and Forbes. It's now the New York Times and the Washington Post and the NBC Nightly News, all of whom are covering everything from the Great Resignation to, you know, IPOs to, you know, the Implosion at you know the dot com of 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 the week. Um, you know those stories. I mean, everybody has always had business news desks, but those are now sort of front page news stories on and in in mainstream media. Um, and so, as I said, I I think it's ultimately a good thing because you know it, it shows that the pool of people who are interested in our content is is only growing. For, for both of our titles, I think it's really being very clear-eyed about who we are and, and, and what we're not. You know, I, I say this all the time, we, we can't compete with Bloomberg or Reuters or the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. We, we don't have the resources to cover the entire sort of beachfront of business news. Um, and so we have to understand for both our titles who our readers are and what they're looking for our titles to deliver, and then to be able to tell those stories in a way that really adds value and makes it worth their time. And as I said, 
you know, so much so that they're willing to subscribe to us because over time, you know, there's only so many articles we can give that reader for free. And so for Inc., you know, again, that is that entrepreneurial reader. Um, and sometimes someone may be going to Inc. because they're looking for a very specific article on, you know, how to set up a limited liability corporation or how to apply for a certain kind of loan. And, you know, Inc. has been doing this for more than 40 years. It has, in, it has a ton of credibility. You know, are you going to trust the website of, you know, an ad-supported company that may be in the business of filing documents on your behalf? Or are you going to trust, you know, a brand that has been helping entrepreneurs and that, you know, everybody from Michael Dell to Mark Cuban to, you know, um, you know, name your founder you know, kind of credits with helping them start their businesses. So, you know, we have in Inc. that credibility. Uh, on the fast company side, you know, I think that that brand has really established great dominance in certain communities. You know, one community in particular is the design community. Fast Company was probably the first business publication in the world to really cover design as a business and the business of design. And so, you know, that that kind of coverage is just, you know, there's others have tried to, to, to jump onto that bandwagon, but there are very few other places where you can get that kind of content. And then, you know, the other piece is just looking through everything, looking at everything through the lens of innovation. Um, and, you know, there is a um, ability to spot innovation and companies that are innovating well before the rest of the world has sort of acknowledged these companies that I think has made Fast Company a destination, not just for, um, you know, consumers who are interested in the world of business, but, you know, investors and venture investors and, um, you know, enterprise software companies looking for growth prospects. Like Fast Company has identified a lot of those, those future unicorns um, almost before the rest of the world has. The last thing we ask all our guests is what is the last thing you read or saw or watched that really affected you? I just watched The French Dispatch the other day. It is now available um, on on pay-per-view and television, and that's the movie that is loosely based on The New Yorker magazine. And I have to say that I was just utterly charmed not so much by um, the plot, which was absolutely a love letter to journalism at a time when I think we all would love a love letter to journalism, but also because of the set design and the meticulousness and the attention to detail. And, you know, as somebody who um, who has has sat in that sort of role of having to be a curator, um, it was uh, you know, nothing but respect <laughs> was I was in awe of, uh, of 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 this beautiful world that Wes Anderson had created. So we are only six weeks out now from the Publisher Podcast Awards. We are absolutely delighted to announce this week that Megaphone by Spotify have joined as silver sponsors. Yeah. If you want to, woohoo! If you want to be in a room with not just Megaphone by Spotify, but a panel of luminaries, all our judges, and some winners of the most prestigious Publisher Podcast Awards in the UK and maybe even the world, you can head across to publisherpodcastawards.com/tickets. There are still some 
team tables left, although we do know that there are a few of those that are going to go this week. We would love to see you there. Uh, just a quick reminder, Wednesday at 10.35, I'll be on stage at the publishing show XL in London talking to Anoush Chakalian of the New Statesman and Chris Finn of DC Thompson about what makes an award-winning podcast. They should know because they've got award-winning podcasts. Come down, ask them some questions, say hello, um, and remember, sign up for the newsletter and we'll put a discount code in there for you. But until next week, when we'll be back with another fantastic guest, goodbye. Queremos volver a verte la próxima semana, pero por ahora, adiós y que estés bien. Adiós. What he said. (laughs) 